Is there anything crazier, anything nuttier that we could say than Jesus defeated death and sin by raising from the dead and yet he has no claim on how you and I use the resources he's given us? Is anything crazier, anything more illogical? The answer is no, by the way, right? He has claim over us. And so as an equipping church, we want to equip you to think biblically about all of life. And one of the most important areas we can do that in is how we are to reprioritize the resources God has given us. Because here's the deal. Here's the truth for all of us. Somewhere in the process of us growing up, in our stories, we develop our own private philosophy of how we use our time and talent and truth and treasure in our temple, our physical bodies. But we know because we know us, there's a universal flaw in that thinking and it usually sounds like this. I do what I feel and I do what I think. And when that happens, we get in trouble when it comes to the resources God has given us. So this morning, I hope this message is encouraging. I hope it's informative. And I hope it's very practical and helpful as we look at how the resurrection reprioritizes our resources. So just to start, on your notes, Roman number one says, we are stewards and our job description is faithfulness. So we sort of got to... We sort of got to build a foundation this morning. We sort of got to have a starting place to understand all of this. And the first place is that we're just stewards and we're called to be faithful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. That Greek word includes a form of the word house. And what it does, it gives a word picture or describes a household manager in the ancient Greek world who handled the possessions of the owner. Managers are accountable, think of this, to the owners for how they use their resources. We have this Old Testament picture, if you would, of Joseph in Genesis 39. It says, Potiphar, the prince, put Joseph in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care Everything he owned. Now, don't remember this. Don't forget, Joseph enjoyed what his owner owned, but Joseph owned what? Nothing. He was a steward of that. I was turkey hunting <clears throat> a few years ago. It's turkey season, so I got to use the illustration. And I had knocked a few months before. I was knocking on doors and finding places to hunt. And I went to this door and I asked this lady, I've seen some turkeys in your pasture. Do you mind if I hunt? She said, yeah, that'd be fine. So a few months later, during turkey season, a friend of mine I had, I won't say who it was, I took with me, shot and missed a gobbler. He missed him 30 yards. How did he do that? Okay. First of all, a little shame there. And uh, <clears throat> so shame never hurts in hunting. It's the only place you can lose, use it. So all of a sudden... I heard a four-wheeler crank up and look coming across the pasture and this guy's on a four-wheeler coming at me. He said, what in the heck? But he didn't say, heck, are you doing? I said, I'm hunting. He said, no kidding, Sherlock, right? He said, who gave you permission? I said, 
the owner. Person I went to the door, told him the truth, gave him my information, sheet of paper. He said, that's not the owner, that's the renter. <laughs> you see how that works. I said, hey man. I said, can I hunt? <laughs> he said, no. <clears throat> I said, hey, have not because you ask not. My favorite Bible verse. So in light of that, we have a couple lenses this morning that we, may, we have to put these lenses on to see resources properly. The first one is, it ain't yours and you can't take it with you. That's as country as I can say it. Y'all ought to be able to understand that. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from the very first words of the Bible, God lets us know he owns everything because he created everything. Add to that the spiritual truth that God not only created us, but he bought us with the precious blood of his own son. We are his. And every funeral tells us, every funeral reminds us there has never been a U-Haul behind the hearse. But that's not true. Look what I found. <laughs> Somebody, on, look, you can find anything on the internet. I could not believe it. But there was one picture I found. Somebody tried to take it with them. And practically speaking, if we're honest, some of us are trying to, we're living as if we can take it with us. And the scripture says you can't. It ain't gonna happen. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 6. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So because we're not owners and because one day death is coming, here's what God wants to do. In that song, we're talking about God pressing us to make new wine, right? He's saying, part of what I want to do is I want to pry your fingers from your stuff. That's part of what he wants to do. It's a heart thing that it ain't yours and you can't take it with you. You're just a steward. The second lens is we are called as Christ followers to live like aliens and strangers and exiles because this world is not our home. The Apostle Peter starts off in 1 Peter with these words. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as what? Aliens. <clears throat> Peter is giving his people a lens to look through in order to properly read the rest of 1 Peter to properly read the rest of the book of Peter. He's saying that your primary citizenship is in heaven, not the United States of America. That our first primary constitution is the Bible, not the US Constitution. Our first and primary king is the commander in chief, Jesus Christ, not the president, no matter who he is. And the dominant cravings of our heart are not for the, the treasures and tributes of this world, not for your golden watch and your retirement ceremony, but for the kingdom of God. We are aliens, Peter says, the language and values and customs and expectations of this world need to grow. As we grow in Christ, they need to grow very foreign to us. They need to feel foreign to us. 
because something has really radically happened to us. And here's what Peter says in verse 3, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We talked about that Resurrection Sunday. A living hope for another world, another for another, and a greater kind of existence. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. So we got to get these lens on. We got to get this understanding, this foundation within the depths of our souls that you and I are aliens. We live like aliens and it's necessary. Here's the deal because it's a tragedy when we don't. When we fall in love with the world. In Colossians and the book of Philemon, Paul calls Demas his fellow worker, faithful, that worked alongside of Luke and Mark. He praised Demas. But in the last letter to 2 Timothy, here's what he said. He wrote these terrible words. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Let that sit with you. None of us are beyond that happening to us, to be wooed in. It's a great tragedy when a professing believer throws away his faith and hope in the future world, renounces in his lifestyle the citizenship there and lives for this present world. So my aim this morning is to stir you up to stir your heart, to remind you, to encourage you, to exhort you, to persuade you, to correct you, to stir you up in such a way that you don't fall in love with this present world. It's temporary and it never satisfies. So having said that, let's take a look at our resources. And as we do, <clears throat> there's one more little lens, and that's the lens of generosity. It says in your notes there, it is at the very heart of God's character. God is a giver and not a taker. He generously lavishes resources on us in order that we might use them for his kingdom and his glory, not so that they will come back and land on us for our glory. I love Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son gave him up for, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously, graciously give us all things, context, so that you and I can do what he's called us to do? So having said that, we have five primary resources, our time, our talent, our truth, our treasure, and our temple, the physical body. I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. So the first one is time. And we'll spend more here because I think time affects the rest of them. And you and I all feel this pinch of time. May, you know, some of us don't feel the pinch of treasure because we don't have much treasure. But all of us got the same amount of time. We're rich in time. Psalm 90, 12. <clears throat> but it says here, it says, so you're old enough, you'll remember... The Ed Sullivan Show. How many of you are old enough to remember the Ed Sullivan Show? Do you remember this guy right here? Look at the picture. Remember him? <clears throat> Here's what he'd do. He'd, he'd get a stick and he'd start spinning plates. Remember that guy? And his, <clears throat> it was fascinating as a small kid watching it. 
because one plate would start wobbling and he'd run back and keep it going and the other ones start wobbling and the intensity and the drama and the, oh my gosh, is the plate's gonna fall. And that's how most of us are living or have lived at times back and forth when it comes to time. It feels out of control. The plates, all the plates are screaming for my attention. One writer said, so rather than a resource to steward about time, time has become a tyrant that drives us. So what is time? <clears throat> Something that is uniquely rare. It can, you can never repeat it or relive, relive it. There's no such thing as instant replay in real life. It both travels alongside of us every day and yet also has eternity wrapped up in it. Scripture tells us that God was the creator of time. Remember Genesis 1-5, God said, let there be light, let there be darkness, let there be night, let there be day. And amazingly, the scripture shows us that God never wastes time. We also know that our time on earth is short. The psalmist in Psalm 89 says he urges us to remember how short our time is. And we also know that our God is not bound by time. Psalm 90 puts it this way, a thousand years in your sight, Lord, are but as yesterday when it passed. Eternity present and eternity future connect in the context of time. Mark 13 puts it this way. Be alert, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Be alert. You and I do not know when we will pass from this earth or Jesus will return. And our time will be up. Time is a gift from God to be stewarded. So remember, context is, is just, this foundational context is so crucial. We are house-sitting this thing called time. We are managing the affairs of another's time. It's his time and we are either using his gift to us wisely or unwisely. We're being wise with it or we're being foolish with it. And because God works in time on his timetable, we are to join him in his time to accomplish his work. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. In the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory, Paul says, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Paul says, I will have reason to glory because I am not wasting my time, or put it better, I am not wasting God's time. He has given me a mission and a purpose to live, and I am living that out. Psalm 90.12 gives us clarity and a command. When it says, teach us, that's what we're doing this morning. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom when it comes to time. Now, when I was in college, <clears throat> I played football at East Carolina University. And we had a coach who was a phenomenal coach. There's a picture here of him, Ed Emery. But he was hilarious. And he had a little bit of a speech impediment. And even now, 30 plus years later, guys on that team talk about not only what he said, but how he said it. 
He would say, uh, good morning, Jeff. How are you? I said, good, coach, one time. And I said, uh, uh, he said, what are, you getting what are you getting treatment for? I said, well, I pulled my hamstring, coach. He said, uh, Jeff, you're too slow to have a hamstring, <laughs> you know. Now, here's what he is. He's talking to us right here, right? But here's what he said. When he said, he said, every game we lost. He said, men, look, we didn't lose today. We just ran out of time. <laughs> when it comes to time, our dilemma goes deeper than a shortage of time. Ed said a lot of good things. Ed was wrong on that. You and I have a problem of priorities. The issue is not more time. The issue is do we do first things first? How do we prioritize our time? Do we spend our time based on what God says is important? Do we spend our time on what God says he values? And there's two categories that may help us. One is this urgent, and we all feel this. It calls for instant action and endless demands. Most of us can live right there. And then there's this, what I would call, important category. Urgent and important, which means it doesn't have to be done today but it really will ultimately define your life. Are you doing the important? I love in Jesus in John 17, he said, I glorified you on earth. Think about this. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is saying, Father, I was here on this earth for 33 years in ministry for three years full time and I did every single thing you told me to do. Everything. Jesus stayed mission minded with his priorities. Think about this, just a snapshot. Matthew 20, he came not to serve, but to serve and give, to be served, but to serve and give his life away. Mark 3, he was working so hard, meeting the needs of, the needs of his people and the disciples that the disciples thought he was crazy. Mark 4, after a long day, he passed out in a boat and he was so tired, he slept so hard that the storm did not wake him. But, this is important, he also said no to the demands of the people in order that he may meet with his father. And for every 10 people he healed, there were hundreds still waiting on him. He had the ability to say no. And ultimately for you and I, when it comes to time, it comes down to you and I learning to say yes and to say what? No. Yes and no. We are not God. We cannot solve the world's problems. But through prayer and through counsel and through the word of God, we can say yes and no. I thought of a mother as a children with small needs or a children, small children with many needs. A mother needs to say no a lot because she has a priority in that season at home. I think of my wife, Jenna, who this just made a decision to say no for speaking at Family Life for the next year because Joel has one more year at home and she's gonna invest hard there. So time has a lot to do with what we say yes to and no to. 
We must receive divine direction from God's word and prayer when it comes to time. If not, here's what happens. We forget what God's mission is. We get our priorities messed up and then we drift toward our propensity of making life about us, what we think, and what we feel. So Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And that word best use means redeem, to buy the time back from this evil world that we live in. And here's what you and I know, if we waste enough of our time, and we certainly aren't perfect with this, but if we waste enough of our time, what happens is we end up through the years wasting our lives. So it's always important to recalibrate, to reset, to ask hard questions. How am I using my time? And, and, and look, I don't want to speak to anybody particularly, but if you ask pastors across the board, solid pastors across the board, they would say in churches generally, here's what people do. When it comes to them feeling the pinch of their time, the first thing they say no to is the very thing that will give them spiritual life. They leave their community group. They don't show up on Sunday worship. <laughs> they don't open the scriptures. It's the first thing, not the last thing. They don't say no to the 9,000 sports they have their kids in, and I'm a sport guy, right? They don't say, look, I got to pull back here. I, they don't make an adjustment here or there. They make, a, and they make the adjustment or hit eject based on the very thing that will give them life. It's a tendency of ours because they think, we think that's the thing I can do without when it's actually the very thing that you need. Second one, talent. Talent. <clears throat> Here's the good news. Every Christian, as a member of the body of Christ, God has given a gift. He's gifted for the person purpose of mission and ministry and using our talents is so important when it comes to being good stewards of these gifts. First Peter 2 9 challenges us with our mission. It says but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellence say it with me. Thank you very much. You may proclaim them things <laughs> of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But what is vital to our ability to actually proclaim these excellencies of God is Peter's word to us a few chapters later in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Listen to these words. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The word gift there, we're using the word talent, but the word gift or talent is the Greek word charisma which means a gift of grace. 
used of special spiritual abilities given by the Spirit to enable Christians to serve the body of Christ. And all believers have at least one gift, if not several. Our gifts are to be viewed as something to steward well. We use these gifts not to bring us praise, but to bring praise to God and to serve each other. And as we use this gift, we do so in the overflow of our intimacy. We spent time with God and even in our dependence upon God. They're not just like self-made gifts. So when using these talents, there are to be no selfish agendas in the church or to gain a position of prestige. That doesn't happen in the church. It happens, but it's not supposed to happen in the church. We've actually had people leave this church because we didn't put them in some dreams position that they thought of leadership. No, there's a problem there. They're wanting their gifts for themselves. Our talents or gifts are the ways we are servants of Christ and we are to be found faithful. Synonyms of that? Trustworthy, reliable, dependable. Notice there's no word in the Bible when it comes to speaking of gifts such as dynamic. So that's what you hear in church. That's so dynamic. No, no, I don't need dynamic. God does it. God is dynamic. God is off the chart dynamic. He needs us to be faithful, reliable, trustworthy. And these gifts are a matter of God's grace. So they're never a matter for us boasting in ourselves or putting down others. I love how Warren Wisby put it. Warren Wisby, by the way, was a great pastor and theologian who just died yesterday at 89. The first commentary I ever read was one of Warren Wisby's B-series commentaries. He says this, nothing causes more damage in a local church than a believer who overrates himself and tries to perform a ministry that he cannot do, not gifted for. And the opposite is true as people undervalue themselves. So our gifts are from God. They're acts of grace. And lastly, our gifts are to be discovered, developed, and used through faith and hard work and prayer. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 1.29. For this I toll, this working, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Grace is not opposed to effort when it comes to our gifts. And when our gifts are developed, they constitute God's primary place for us to do ministry. Not the only place, but there's some primary places for us to do ministry. God wants to use each of us. How about that? You are needed at this church. Your gifts are needed. Your talents are needed to be used here. There's no such thing as spectators in the church. There's no such thing as consumerism. There's no such thing as to sit and to soak. We're all participants, using our time, using our talent, and then thirdly, using our truth. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul says, preach the word 
Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, using the word, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Christ followers, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. So Paul is saying here, every Christian has a responsibility to be faithful with the truth of God's word. And the bottom line is to do that. Okay, I can't, I wish there was a shortcut. I wish I could give you some secret little, little secret thing that you go, oh, that's how they do it. Maybe Jeff, Jeff lays his, he sleeps at night on his Bible and it just goes in that big head of his, right? No, 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 no. To be faithful with his word, you must read it, study it, know it, live it, meditate on it. The word for meditate is mutter. To mutter it over and over upon your mind and heart to treasure it, to teach it. Yes, you know how you learn the word, you teach it to someone else, whether it's a five-year-old or a 55-year-old, to guard it. And we use that, Paul says, to persuade one another, to correct each other, to encourage, he says, with patience and explanation. We are to take it in and steward it by giving it away. And when it, we take it in and give it away, it needs to be what God meant, not what we think. And to be done with, in this context, this, this, what does that look like? It's done with orthodoxy, which means it's good doctrine. It's done with orthopraxy, which means good living. We're actually attempting to live out what we know, not perfectly, but there's some integrity and credibility there. And then I think it's done where we've done a disservice in the evangelical world at times is to be done with orthopathy or empathy as we deal with others who are struggling with life and knowing God's word. We're doing it with empathy, knowing that it has been us and it could be us in the future. Very tenderly. You leave one of those aspects out in his word we're not being good stewards of it. Again, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it. Some have swerved from the faith. So, the deposit of truth is on loan to the church who must keep it safe so that it can be returned to the Lord Jesus on the last day. Dr. John MacArthur puts it this way, he says, every Christian has that sacred trust, the guard, the revelation of God. Now I know that we live in a world that is more interested in saving the planet than it is knowing their need for a savior. And let me just say parentheses, we're supposed to steward the planet too. 
We don't throw litter out the, out the window. We don't treat it. No, we steward this too. But folks, there's a greater need. It is our job. It is your job. It is my job. Because this word, this powerful word, it reconciles men to God and it transforms men and women to, into the image of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing more powerful than that. And it comes from the heart. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. He says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. If you want to pray something before you open the scriptures, pray Psalm 119.18. We just sang it this morning. Open my eyes, Lord, so I can see wondrous things from your law. God will honor that prayer. God will answer that prayer. So time, talent, truth, and now treasure. <clears throat> when it comes to Jesus and money in the Bible, you may or may not know this, 16 of 38 parables that Jesus told were about money. One out of every 10 verses in the gospel relates to money or possessions. There's 700 verses in the New Testament about love. There are 500 verses about prayer. Would you say love and prayer are important? Yeah. There are a little bit less than 500 about believing. There are over 2,000 with the word give. If anything, there's no doubt that God wants to teach us about giving. What does it mean to be givers? Because we live in a, such a materialistic world. Generosity is to materialism what kryptonite is to Superman. It kills it. And you and I need it to be killed in us. The point with our treasure is how I use God's money shows where my heart is. It's just plain for me. And for you. And nobody navigates this perfectly, folks. I've done some stupid stuff with money. Some of you are thinking, yeah, me too. <laughs> some of you are thinking, I haven't had enough to do anything stupid with, right? I'd like one chance, right? But here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So Jesus is saying, once again, the Christian life is not about a set of rules. It's about our hearts. How we use God's money shows what world we love. The world now or the world to come. John Calvin said we must make the invisible kingdom visible in our midst. And there's no better way to do that than with the use of our money. In Luke 16, 10 through 11, this is a great illustration for us. Money is the training wheels of true riches. That's the point in, in, in Luke 16. Here it is. Luke 16 is the parable of the dishonest businessman. And obviously the context is the use of money. Let me read it to you. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches, Jesus says. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either they will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So notice there, Jesus calls money unrighteous wealth, not because it's bad or unimportant, but because he is comparing it, money, to what? True riches. And true riches are the stewardship of the gospel. Bottom line, Jesus is saying, if you cannot be trusted with how we use our master's money, remember it's not yours, how can the master trust you with something that's so much more valuable? The gospel, the stewardship of God's truth. So living generously with our time, talent, and truth, this is what Jesus is saying here, is contingent upon how well you learn to live generously with money. You will not sow truth generously You will not use your gifts selflessly and invest time wisely if not generous with God's money first. That's what he's saying. Honestly, biblical giving is the pre-K of the Christian life. Biblical giving is the ABCs of the Christian life. Biblical generosity is the one, two, threes of the Christian life. Generous giving is always to originate and be motivated by God's great grace to you. Here's our pastor, Ray Stedman, who was the pastor of Charles Swindoll for years. He says, if God has not done anything for you, then for goodness sake, don't give a dime. But if he has, then pour it out according to the measure you have received treasure. Lastly, temple. And I don't want to spend long here. And what was hard about this week is I could have done three sermons on each one of these five things. So you can applaud me for my efficiency in time, even though I'm a little bit over time. Thank you. But I, I, I did want to say something about our temples. There's two opposite. These, I'm talking about our bodies here. And I know 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's talking about using our body for sexual immorality. That can't do that because the Spirit of God lives in us. But big picture, there's two opposite and very dangerous views on the physical body. And here's, here's the first one. The first one is this incredible obsession with how we look externally. Folks, our world has lost their mind and Christians have bought into this where the money they spend and the time they spend and the energy they spend to make sure they look the best they can look. And when they don't, they go into despair. That's called an idol. There is dangerous, it's an obsession in our culture, and we can be lured into it. Matter of fact, there's a church in Brentwood called Remnant Fellowship Church, and it's a cult. It's a complete cult, and it started with this lady talking about diet 
and believers ran to it like crazy to lose weight. And what they say is, if you, look, if you, if you don't look perfect on the outside, that's part of your sanctification. Matter of fact, it's gotten so bad that I know folks who knew Christ and they got divorced because one spouse said, this is the only church. And they say they're the only church and left their other spouse. So there's a dangerous obsession with that. And then there's this other side, and I've been on this side. Look, I've never been obsessed over here. Look, I caught Jenna early when I had hair. And like, I'm good, right? I got a little love handles going on. I'm good. I'm not going to show them to you. But, but there's this other side where eight years ago, busy, planning a church. There's all kinds of excuses. Raising a family. I, my numbers started ticking up. I started not feeling good. And here's the deal. I'm a physiology exercise major. I know what to do. I can write your program. But I couldn't write a program for myself. To simply, Jeff, take care of yourself. God doesn't sleep, but he made us to need sleep. He made us to need to move and to exercise. I know I ain't pretty doing yoga, but I do yoga. How about that? To, to be reasonable. And the reason is I'm not motivated to look suave. Okay? I'm not. I'm motivated so I can be in the mission so I can feel good, so I can engage, so I can pursue my wife and my kids in this church to take care of ourselves. So that's all I'm going to say about that. There's a lot more. Take a minute this morning. It's a great Sunday morning to ask yourself the question, How am I stewarding the resources that God has given you? To process that, each one of you have unique circumstances and are in unique seasons, right? What do you need to say yes to? What do you need to say no to? The Lord knows. He knows the gifts He gave you. He... He wants you to use them for his purposes. It's where we find our pleasure. How might that look in your life in these areas? Take a minute to ask that question.